Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world. And other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello and welcome to this episode of Being Human. My name is Dr. Chua Suk Ning, and today I'm joined by Pei Kai Xuan as we discuss the problem of rising suicide rates in Malaysia and what we can all do to help suicide prevention and support people who are experiencing suicidal thoughts and feelings. Kai Xuan is a clinical psychologist and the head of program at the Department of Psychology and Counseling, University Tunku Abdul Rahman. To aid in suicide prevention, he has developed and piloted a four-step suicide prevention program known as CARE, CARE, and other areas of his professional interests include mental health literacy, neurodevelopmental disorders, and mindfulness-based interventions. Welcome to the show, Kaishwen. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks, Dr. Chua. Thanks for having me. So to start out with, I mean, I've... I've heard about you from other um, mental health professionals, um, even politicians, and you're like kind of the go-to suicide guy. How did you, uh, it's a good reputation to have in that, you know, you are one, I think, one of the experts in interventions and prevention work. Um, how did you start in this area? I start to dive into suicide prevention well probably about 10 years ago 10 years or more ago uh, when I was a trainee counsellor in a hospital so I worked with the clients and um, at the end of the sessions the client went back home and, um, and she attempted uh, so that was a near miss um, situation I was pretty upset with that with myself and was wondering um, uh, what went wrong and uh, how can I do it better next time what are the things that I've missed? And, and I started to look around for literatures. I, I, I talked to my supervisors. Um, I, talked to my, uh, I talked to my seniors. They are very, very supportive and they're very helpful. Um, just that I felt that I'm lacking of a handle. Uh, where, where, what are the tools? Yeah, I know that I need to do listenings. I know that I probably need to assess a little bit of, of these areas of suicidal thoughts. So um, then what next? So I started to ask about um, what else. What else are the things that I can do, and how can I um, how can I make it better? How can I enhance my clients' experience in the future? So, with that, I started to uh, look around in uh, from the internet. I actually um, participated in an online trainings by the QPR Institute. On the it's a suicide prevention gatekeeper program. So I learned about that, and I find that super helpful. And I also find that that programs is um, because it's, it's something very easy um, for any people. It's not just professional members, um, any lay persons to, uh, to learn about that. So, yeah, then um, I started to share about the programs with, um, with my friends, with my students. And um, sometime down the road, I started to realize that, hey, um, there are some components in the, in the QPR programs. It's probably not not exactly um, suitable or it's, it, it's not a perfect match to the Malaysian context, to our local 
scenario, the local context, and how can we make it better? Um, is there something else that we can do to make the program more accessible and also easier to learn for the local peoples, for Malaysians specifically? Then, yeah, so together with my colleagues, we started to think of what about we make acronyms of CARE. So as you mentioned just now, it's a four-step suicide prevention gatekeeper programs. That's a really inspiring um, story. I think what's what was interesting too is you said you were training to be a counselor, yet you found there were very few resources to uh, even help you um, yeah. manage uh, people who are uh, feeling suicidal. And I, I can only imagine that if, if you as a mental health professional find it difficult, how much more difficult it would be for just the ordinary Joe on the street, you know, people who aren't trained in these things. Exactly, exactly. The, the trainings on suicide prevention is very, very minimal and little in, in the training programs that I used, that I used to be in. And um, that's probably a lecture or perhaps a lecture or two talking about suicide prevention and that's it. What's more worrying is that suicide is often a very emotional taxing subjects for a trainee or for young mental health professionals who are lacking of experience. And um, the first time when I have a client who is suicidal, I felt that, oh my God, do I now decide whether he or she is, is live or die? Or what do I do now? Or uh, if I say the wrong thing, will the client just die by that? You know? So yeah, so lots of thoughts and lots of anxiety uh, that I was experiencing as a trainee. So what do we do about that? And um, um, does anyone talk to us about that? And how can we better navigate around these issues? Yeah, that's you're right. I mean, it is a really difficult situation for everyone involved. You know, the person who is struggling and contemplating uh, ending their lives, yeah, the family members, friends, but even mental health professionals to sort of approach that and have that response, they feel that burden of responsibility, right? That it all rests on them to um, keep them alive. And I'd like to talk to you a bit more about that, but let me just put it out there that maybe some people are thinking, yeah, this sounds great, you know, suicidal prevention, but it's not that often that it happens, you know. I mean, we're Malaysians, you know, I think it's really a problem in the States. Have you seen the numbers in the States? So are you sure we really need to focus on this? Yeah, that's one of the most often questions I get. In fact, mm. um, I recently presented a, a proposals to, to a potential sponsors and, and that's exactly what they told me. They were saying that, you know, that's not something that we probably, that's not the priority area. So uh, let's focus on something else. Um, how often suicidal behaviors happen in Malaysia? In 2017, the National Health and Morbidity Surveys um, conducted by the Ministry of Health reported that about 10% of our young people who are aged in between of 13 to 17 are having suicidal ideations in the past 12 months. And what's more worrying is about 7% of them um, has attempted in the past 12 months, at least once they have done something to um, hurt themselves. And um, because of the Ministry of Health um, is conducting this survey every five years, 
The last one was 2017, which means the previous one in 2012, if we compare the data with the 2012 data, um, there was a significant increase. The trend is upward. So uh, we are having more and more young people thinking and contemplating about suicide. Uh, there are more of them has a suicidal plan and there are more young people probably has attempted suicide in the past 12 months. So that's something that I guess a lot of people start to wonder what's wrong and, and why is it so? Well, that's a great question. What is wrong? And why do you think it has increased um, so dramatically over the past couple of years? The fact is we don't have, we don't actually have the data. We don't, uh, we don't have a scientific answers for that. Uh, the data that we have right now, it's probably insufficient to make to, to draw a very definite conclusions on we you know what's wrong and we know why is it so. But um, if we take a closer look, we zoom into the data collected in the National Health and Mobility Surveys, um, some of the risk factors of, um, that correlates with suicidal behaviors includes depressions, anxiety, stress, loneliness, and we, also, we, we have also noticed that um, more and more young people are actually reporting that they feel very lonely, uh, that no one could understand them in the, past, um, in the past 30 days. More and more young people have uh, sleep problems. The prevalence of sleep problems among young people, uh, in 2012, it was 5.4%, and it increased to 7.1% in, in 2017. Uh, that means in almost every 15 adolescents, one of them is suffering from sleep issues. And more young people report that they don't have friends, bullied is another issue, alcohol use, and also drug use. So um, we are seeing a general upward trend on all these related problems. I cannot be sure that these are all contributes to um, suicidal behaviors, but it provides us a little bit of hints that probably these are some, some of the areas that we should look into. So we've got um, stress, there's depression, or feeling low, uh, feelings of anxiety, loneliness is a big one. But you know, the kids are always connected, right? I mean, you said it's, it's rising among young people. How is it that you're feeling so lonely if they're always on their phones, if they're always using social media? Isn't that enough for them you know um, that they shouldn't be feeling lonely yeah so that's uh, that's the irony of it uh, our young people are probably connected all the time they are connected on the net but pretty much disconnected uh, deep down inside their hearts uh, not many people would be able to understand them what we are being shown in the social media often are the um, things that the social desirable part uh, things that they want people to see, but uh, how many friends that they have on their Facebooks or on their social medias that, that they can confide to? I guess that's one of the questions that I often ask um, some of my adolescent clients. How many friends do you have in Facebook? Some of them have thousands of friends and some of them have um, probably more than that. And they have lots of followers as well. But um, when it comes to questions of um, when you need to need someone to talk to, how many of these a couple thousands of friends that you have on your social media groups, how many of them are the one that you can confide to? If I'm lucky on a good time, uh, I probably get one of them or two of them. When it's not so good, um, at a not so good time, it's probably zero. None of them that they can talk to. 
So I guess that's also the change of the patterns of interpersonal relationships. Um, it's become more, more and more superficial. We are connected, yet we are not exactly engaged. Right. So it's like we've got this quantity of social connections, but not mm-hmm. the quality of the social connection. And so in the end, our minds are always busy in that sense, right? We always got this noise, conversations, but nothing that I guess is, is meaningful and can really make us feel like we are valued and cared for. Yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. Not many friends or not many peoples that they have that actually truly understand them, that truly mean to them. Yeah, that's what a lot of young people are saying. But, you know, who really truly understands us? right? Why do you think that's so important? So if I ask you, like, I can be honest, I don't think anyone really understands me. Mm -hmm. Um, Why do you think that's, you know, that idea of like, I really need someone to understand me, it can drive someone to such despair? Pretty much as a human beings, we are very much longing to be understood. Um, We have the longings of being recognized, to be seen. But often that's not the exact case like is it like they just need to accept that nobody will really recognize them and then they'll be happy you know or is it really possible for them to get what they long for you know is is it like this idea that maybe we have uh, expectations of feeling like i really want someone or there really is someone who's going to recognize me and is that even realistic yeah at times that could be that might be, that might be not. But I guess at least they want to be seen. They want to know that, hey, um, someone care about me. Someone values my existence. They know that they are important to somebody. But often that's not what they get. And perhaps it's not possible to, to, uh, to, to get someone that it's truly 100% completely understand us. But, you, you know, during the adolescent stage, the companionships that they have, um, having someone in their mind, um, being somebody that's important to them, um, I guess that's something that they care a lot. They are trying to develop themselves. They're trying to find a place, um, their role. And um, during the identity crisis time, uh, who am I? And pretty much they develop with the sense of self from their interactions with other people. I think we can both accept as adults that really nobody understands us for like 100%. And we understand no one 100%. We're not psychic here. Uh, And so maybe it's that that thought, you know, I I wish to be understood. And what lies behind it is that I wish to be accepted for who I am. You know, Mm -hmm. I wish that uh, to be, to feel valued. I wish not to feel like such an alien, you know, Mm -hmm. and like so out of place in this world is really that need for belonging, right? So even if I can accept that not everyone understands me and certainly not 100%, they accept me, you know, they even accept parts of me that they don't understand, you know, and I guess Mm. what comes to mind is maybe a superficial example is like I have got a really bad sense of humor I think it's bad because I, I find myself quite amusing but I also recognize that not everyone shares my sense of humor but I've got people in my life who who accept me even when they don't understand me 
you know and, and so I, I don't feel out of place. They never make me feel like, oh, that's super weird, you know? And they don't make me feel like I should go far away and, and sort of be this uh, social pariah and just exit the room. If they sort of accept that you are here, you are your own person and you've got your own feelings and, and there are things that maybe no one would understand, but you are accepted and valued nonetheless. And certainly we will try to understand, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's true. Um, acceptance and uh, acceptance probably meant more than you know truth. The, the the complete understanding. If you are being accepted and uh, you are being regarded as a person, um, you are being respected as a person, and you know that your existence and your your life matters to someone, then yeah, I guess that would helps them to you know reduce the fit the sense of loneliness and feelings that I'm nowhere. I don't know who am I. I don't know why am I even exist. Well, the need of belonging uh, is one of the basic psychological needs um, that yep. all of us you know have. Um, I want to kind of switch over to back to the central topic of suicidality, and I. And you mentioned something about um, self-harming. A lot of people think, you know, if you self-harm, you it means that you're going to end your life. Um, mm-hmm. And that has been shown to be a misconception. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk about that and maybe other sort of myths or common misunderstandings around suicide mm-hmm. that you encounter? Yeah. So lots of people thought that when people who are suicidal, they meant to end their life. It means that they are not... They don't appreciate their life. They don't embrace their life. They are probably too fragile to take any stress from their life. But I guess that's not exactly the case. Um, often people are suicidal because they are having a lot of pain, uh, unbearable amount of pain, and, and they want the pain to end. They want to stop the pain. More often than not, it's, they are trying to kill the pain but they couldn't look at, they couldn't see is there any other way out, um, other way out um, as if killing themselves is the only way that they can stop the pain. This actually also means that if we can give the pain an outlet, if we can provide an outlet for the pain, if we can do something that to ease the pain, then perhaps suicide is not exactly uh, the only way out. They, uh, they have more choices. You know, I often hear like people talk about strawberry generation and yep. people, you know, the, this generation can't, are, they're too soft, you know, they're not able to kind of take any stress. And is that why so many young people conclude that um, they can't bear the pain? Is it because they're too, I don't know, sensitive or weak? And maybe mm-hmm. we, you know, is that what we should end up doing? We should just try to make them tough. That's another very common uh, perceptions that lots of people have on the, our younger generations thinking of they are just um, unable to take any stress and they're lacking of resiliency they are unable to bounce back while having stress but logically and um, if, if you look at this if you look at what they're experiencing from another point of view what our millennials are experiencing right now um, we are in a much more, I, I guess we are now living in the most uncertain era than ever. Uh, we have a lot of difficulties and challenges. The pandemic is a, it's one of the, um, it's one of the classic examples. Um, the times have changed, things have evolved, but there are lots of uncertainties. They, the, the kids are not sure whether they are going to school. 
that next week, um, whether they should, whether they'll be seeing their friends. And some people, um, some people have termed it as uh, VUCA, so volatility, uncertainty, and complex, and even uh, ambiguous. So uh, we're experiencing this much more than ever. And um, in the developing stage, in the adolescent stage, uh, naturally, they are already experiencing quite numbers of identity crisis and um, trying to develop their self-identity, trying to, trying to sort out who they are, what they are going to do. And at the same time, they're experiencing um, so much amount of complexity and uncertainty. I guess that's um, going to be very, very difficult. It's certainly much more difficult than the previous generations. So um, I'm not too sure judging them as um, strawberry generations, you know, they are unable to uh, accusing them for not being resilient enough. I'm not too sure whether that's going to help making them better. Perhaps the question should be, how can we help young people to uh, cope with the ever fastest changing era? And that's a great point. Um, there's some research that shows that just objectively stress, you know, the number of things that can stress a person out has increased over the years. Yeah. Um, and before, you know, we talk about how we can support um, people with suicidal ideation, I just want to briefly touch because we've covered a lot about youths and suicidal ideation among youths, but also the data um, shows that the prevalence of suicidality really increases among the elderly, you know, yeah. Are there the same risk factors? Um, you know, what's going on with um, the older population? The risk factors for suicides, the reasons of uh, people start to, uh, people develop suicidal ideation, it's always very complicated. It's, um, it's much more complex than uh, people think it should be. And we are going to be an aging nation. Our older people, our senior citizens are living... Uh, much uh, longer than the previous generations. And um, that means uh, we have advanced so much in terms of uh, medical care. We have ways to preserve life. We have very advanced technologies in prolonged life. But the question is, are they getting the quality of life that they would like to have? They are living longer and are they living meaningfully? Often, lots of older people perhaps uh, they don't find the meaning of why do I live so long? Um, they have lost the quality of life that they enjoy. So yeah, naturally that would contribute to suicidal ideations. It's a remarkably complex uh, topic. And um, what I hear and understand from, from this conversation so far is that, you know, the different risk factors and sort of different things that are, we got to, keep an eye out for people of different ages and even cultural backgrounds and gender. So because it's so complex and there's so many different risk factors, what can we actually do practically to support um, someone uh, with suicidal ideation? You know, it, it seems so overwhelming. You know, where do we start? So often instead of we try to jump into the sea and say that, okay, I'm going to save you. I'm going to fix the problem now. Again, the step one would be listen to understand, trying to understand what's going on with the persons. It's often a lot. When someone develops the suicidal ideations, the suicidal ideation, it's not something overnight. They don't, they don't just think of they want to kill themselves or they want to do something to harm themselves all of a sudden. So most of the time, there are lots of things that have been going through um, in their life and they have probably end 
trying to endure lots of pains and difficulties. And the step one thing is probably shows your care and concern, express your care and concern, saying that, hey, you have been seems to be really unhappy recently. Um, would you mind to share with me what's going on? Can I understand a little bit more about uh, what's up over here? So when you start to care about other people, shows your concerns about other people, that's what makes people feel that, hey, I matters to you and you're trying to understand me. Someone cares about me. And um, so that's probably the first thing to do. And the second thing, I guess, um, that's extremely important is to listen. Listen to understand. It's not re- listen to response or listen to, um, uh, to react. It's complete active listening to understand what's going on with the persons and letting them know that whatever that they are saying, whatever that they experience, it's something that is that you are interested to know and you respect their, um, the emotions, the feelings and the inner experience that they're going through. Often, a lot of people find that, yes, I listen, so what? Practically, the listening is, um, you provide an outlet for people's uh, str- uh, struggling and sufferings. And um, yeah, that would help to reduce the inner pains that people are experiencing quite significantly. So listening, um, showing your care, could you say what the C-A-R-E actually stands for? So the C-A-R-E, the care stands for, the step one, the, the, the C stands for care and concerns. And um, so expressing your care and concerns, A for attentive listening, R for risk review and managements, and finally E for ensures of professional help. So um, how do we do this? Um, I guess we mentioned a little bit about care and concern just now. You start with um, asking, hey, are you doing all right? Um, you seems to pretty unhappy recently. If people have expressed their suicidal ideations, you probably want to, or they have, they have told you a lot of um, difficulties that they have going through. You probably want to ask the questions of when people are pretty unhappy, when people are going through so much difficulties, they sometimes think of um, doing something to hurt themselves. I wonder whether you have similar thoughts, whether, I, I wonder whether that have came across your mind. So um, in a way, we are normalizing people, are telling people that, hey, um, it's not only you, but lots of people are having that. And, and now I care about whether you're having this, whether you're going through this. Once the person, whether the person's answer is a yes or no, I guess it's pretty important for us to, to continue to listen very carefully, very actively to what's going on with them. Allow ample time and personal space for them to talk. Don't interrupt allow them to express themselves. One of the skills that I teach in the, um, in the care suicide prevention gatekeeper program, then um, lots of people find it very helpful. It's a listening skills called meow. So uh, meow as in the cat's meow. So what, what does meow means? Um, it's actually an acronym. So meow, it's, uh, we spell meow with uh, M-I-A-O-W. So, um, M stands for mm-hmm, and then I, I see, A, aha, and um, O, O, and the W of wow. So when you're listening to someone, instead of thinking of what should I respond next, how do I react to this sentence, what's more helpful is that 
you probably just listen, just give your minimal encourages of mm -hmm, ha ha, I see. That actually can mean a lot to people who are in a crisis. If you must respond something, then you probably want to learn to acknowledge and validate people's feelings and emotions. Um, you can say that, hey, I can see that this is really difficult for you. I can see that this is truly painful for you. You have going through a lot and this is really not easy. So when people's, um, when people's feelings are being acknowledged, um, that's, that's what helps to ease the pain. Neurologically, biologically, we know that people who experience crisis, the deeper parts of their brain called amygdala, it's always activated. And that's organs in our brains that are responsible for fight, flight, and freeze response. People who are in that circumstances, they often do know, they often lost their abilities of rational thinkings, of um, rational decision-makings, and that's something that it's very difficult for them. So re trying to reason with people whose amygdala is activated, it's often not very fruitful. It's not very helpful. The capacity of uh, reasonings, of logical thinkings are very minimal. But studies and research have also shown that when we acknowledge the feelings of other people, when you say that, hey, I can see that you are really frustrated with this, you're really angry with this, um, that helps to deactivate the amygdala and um, calms the brain down. And people start to move on to another part of the brain uh, known as prefrontal cortex, uh, which is responsible for more logical, uh, logical thinkings, for problem solvings, for decision makings. And that helps activate the prefrontal cortex a little bit. And people would start to engage more in, hey, so what do I do next? So that's why the, the listening part is so much important. Um, when we listen actively, acknowledge and validate other people's feelings, and that helps to calm down their megalas, and then we go for problem solving. So I may be different from other people, and I, I thought it was really helpful, the male acronym. Yeah. But if somebody kept doing it to me, I might get annoyed, you know? I'll be like, okay, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it, I don't, maybe I, just, I want you to actually say something, you know, I, I don't want to feel like I'm just telling you and monologuing to you. I want an actual connection. So yeah. is it, is it ever a point where you think it like, okay, there, there is an overuse of mm-hmmms or I see and, and could we use it in maybe a too rote of manner and too robotic? Yeah, that's true. That's why the uh, the second part of it, the validations, acknowledgement, uh, acknowledging of feelings is important as well. So couple up with the meow, I guess that's something that's uh, that's important. Um, it's not just mm -hmm, haha, but at the same time also trying to put yourself inside these people's shoes and acknowledge and validate the feelings that they are going through. Hey, this is. This is really not easy. What you have been going through, it's, it's really, really challenging. So when we acknowledge other people's feelings, that's where we, uh, we connect with other people at the deeper levels. So that's why the program is not called mm -hmm, Mahas. Yeah, um, it actually it's not goes a meow program. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's not a meow program. Um, so that was really helpful. Um, and so, you know, just uh, on a broader level, because you're, you're doing a lot of work and I've seen you offer a lot of programs, but you're just one person. 
coming across as Superman, like you I can see you've put in a lot of effort into it. But on a much broader level, what, what do you think we need um, more of in Malaysia to ensure that people who are feeling suicidal actually get access to effective support and resources, but also carers, because as you mentioned, it's mm. it's draining on them. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy to continuously care for someone who is feeling um, that kind of distress. And what kind of support do we need? And what do you think we need more of? On the organizations or governmental levels, I guess, um, we are, obviously, we need more supports. We need more resources. Uh, access to mental health services, affordable mental health services. Our numbers of mental health professionals uh, ratios to the population is still pretty low. We need more human resources, competent mental health professionals to provide care for people who are suicidal, so even early interventions. We need to uh, decriminalize suicide because pretty much a lot of people are still very scared of go out to get help, to seek for help because um, it's, uh, suicide is still a, a pretty much a taboo and a lot of stigma associated with it. And that's not very helpful for, uh, in, in terms of service provisions. I've came across a numbers of clients that they were delaying their help seeking because uh, they're very worried about if they disclose their suicidal ideations to other people, the clinicians, the doctors would make a police report. And that's, uh, that's actually not very helpful. There are also family members who are aware of their loved one who are suffering from suicidal ideations, but because of the stigma, the taboo, and some of them even worries about legal actions, they are delaying their help seeking. Um, more services, number one, we need to decriminalize suicide. Uh, that's number two. And I guess we can't only rely, always rely on the government services um, to materialize. Uh, of course, that's probably the most effective ways because you are, it's, a, it's an institutional levels of transformations, but I'm not too sure how many years uh, it would take us for that institutional transformations to happen. So if NGOs, non-governmental organizations could start something, could do something that could be extremely helpful as well. Um, how do we come together? There are a lot of NGOs in Malaysia, a lot of organizations that are working on mental health in the mental health areas and even suicide preventions. Uh, but often, uh, many of these organizations are, in, are working in silos. How can we uh, work together? How can we combine our efforts to increase the capacities and serve more people? I like that. That's a really good reminder that institutions, uh, the, the system is going to take time to change. And mm. in the meantime, I, I mean, I, I would add on to that, that not just NGOs, but NGOs need to be funded, <laughs> mm -hmm. cough, um, to be able to do these things. And, and you're right, because I think that I mean, even from the side of Relate Malaysia, mental health isn't a um, popular funding project. You know, uh, it's sort of the, I mean, on, on average, governments spend uh, overall and globally, governments spend less than 2% of their health budget on, on mental health care. Mm -hmm. And so even as, as like an NGO, you know, we feel the pinch and we want to provide more resources, but funding is, is hard to come by. And yep. so I, I would just put that call out there for increased funding uh, to NGOs, but also that, yeah, the, the communities, we have to be empowered um, we have to have that collective sense of responsibility to uh, maybe 
be trained um, under this care program to be more informed, not to feel so helpless, you know, because as you said, suicidality is quite high. And we will certainly, I think many of us will encounter someone in our lives that is not feeling great and and feeling like the only choice they have to end the suffering uh, is to end their lives. One last question is, in terms of resources for people, you know, where can they get help, but also how do they know when to get help? Because actually having thoughts of death mm-hmm. is very common, right? Mm. Um, many of us will at some point in our lives or even some point in this week think, oh, I really can't take this anymore, right? Or mm-hmm. I, I will consider briefly, you know, so when do I know, when is it important enough to get help and, and then where, where should I go? Yeah, that's a very frequently asked question. Um, when to get help? I would say that um, the cutoff points would be, uh, there are two things to consider. Uh, has the suicidal thoughts affects your daily functionings, your daily life? Does it affect your work? Does it affect your relationship with your family members, uh, with other people that you care of? Um, does it affect your productivities? Does it affect your sleep? Does it affect your appetite? If the thoughts has been so intense that it has affects your daily life, that's a good time that you probably need to talk to other people. Another point is, um, another part is, if the thoughts is so intense that you felt that you cannot control and as if you are going to do it in the next few days or in the next few hours, um, that certainly signifies a crisis that you probably need to get an urgent help and emergency help. Um, talk to someone. At times, we are clouded by our thoughts due to various reasons. So um, talking to somebody is about it and um, discussing with, with other people about this may open up your options and alternative. Um, doesn't, uh, it's no longer seeing suicide is the, or harming yourself is the only way out. Where to get help? Well, um, getting help in Malaysia can be very tricky at times. Government, of course, we like to say that there are government hospitals, private hospitals, but the accessibilities to the services can be uh, very tricky, especially during the pandemic time. Lots of people are very scared. Uh, going to hospital, they are not too sure going to hospital is doing more harm or more help. Online support resources are available. Uh, Relate Malaysia is one of the most established online help-seeking platforms. There are also crisis helplines available, befrienders. Um, and recently, we have Childline, which is a crisis helpline that is specifically dedicated for young people, and they are free toll. So these are some of the resources, that are both online and offline, for people. Thank you so much, Kai, for um, sharing your expertise and your experiences with this. Uh, this is a topic that, yeah, hits home for me. Um, when I was depressed, I definitely had suicidal ideation. I've got um, clients who experience this, um, friends, and, you know, it's lonely to experience it. It's also lonely to be a caregiver. And I think, you know, my own struggle with being a caregiver, not not as a professional, but uh, in a personal relationship, it did make me wish that there is more help available for uh, the people I love. You know, that it's not just on me to be there 24-7. And, and so I, I really hope that your work is going to lead to a great systemic change because this is not 
this is not something rare, but it's also that every life is precious. On my end, in realizing that, but also, I guess where the the breaking point was that I I so wished my friends could get effective help, and yeah. I I so wish that I could <laughs> be supported in that because it was also lonely, um, and so I, I was seeing a therapist at that point, and that really helped me to not shoulder the burden, you know, not see myself as the person's life support, you know, and not feel the guilt, you know, that I can't mm. always be there. And there were times that I, I can't always answer the text messages. I couldn't always answer the calls. And so it really is a community effort, you know, that, yeah. that we need systemic changes. We need, um, yeah, we need friends there, uh, we, but we also need professional help um, just to come together as a community to support those among us who are in distress. At the end of the day is also saying, we're going to do our best to make these uh, helps available to you, the resources to, to support you, but we can't make the decision for you. You know, and that's why I think this is such a painful topic because we have to make that conclusion. You know, we kind of come there and go, I can't make that decision for you to live. Yeah, so I guess uh, Dr. Chai has mentioned an um, 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 uh, extremely important point, the supports for caregivers. Um, I often encourage people, so if you are supporting friends or your family members who are suicidals, remember, uh, don't do it alone. Try to get a team of people, at least two or three of you, then you can take things to support your loved ones. And, and after referring your loved one to a professional help, make sure you talk to the professionals the treating clinicians as well, asking of, so what can I do to support my loved one? Um, is there anything else that um, can be helpful for me or for her? In my works, I also offer times, I, I usually spend the 10 to 15 minutes of times with the family members, um, allowing them to vent out and recharge their batteries and um, talk to them about self-care uh, while they're caring for others. So at the end of the day, I guess the care is not only care for people who are suicidal as only, but it's also caring for ourselves as well, um, if, you are, if you wish to help. Yeah, but thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for your work in Malaysia and, and really approaching this topic. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Chuan. And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis, so be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms, one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chua Sukning, and I hope to share some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.